What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 102, An Egyptian Odyssey, aka A Passage to Greece. Today, well, the title is self-explanatory. We are taking a trip to Greece, following an Egyptian embassy as they visit the famous city of Mycenae. The sea rose and fell, a dark, swirling mass under a clear blue sky. The waters were deep, impossibly so, and the darkness of those depths seemed like an abyss for the sailors who rowed bravely upon the waves. An Egyptian vessel made of fine cedar wood unfurled its sail and sped across the sea. The sail, fabric dyed green and red, rippled in the breezes which flowed at the sailors' backs. The great sea-going ship and its hardy crew were the representatives of Neb Ma'at Re Amunhotep III. The pharaoh of Egypt had commanded an embassy to go forth. Amunhotep wished to forge connections with a people that were recently arrived on the international political scene. They were up-and-comers, but increasingly worthy of Egyptian notice. With this in mind, the king commanded a deputation to go forth and a company of Egyptian aristocrats had boarded the great vessel and now sailed across the sea in order to visit mysterious places unknown to their ancestors. They were heading for the land of Greece. Greece was a distant shadow in Egyptian knowledge. Its people had been working their land for 2,000 years and more. With some minor interruptions, Greeks of different social identities had scratched a living on the edge of the known world. Today, those Greeks were attaining more recognition, thanks to the appearance of the Mycenaeans. The Mycenaeans were a rising power in the Aegean. Recently, Egyptians had heard of these people, whom they called Tanayu or Danaeans. The Tanayu Mycenaeans lived on rocky peninsulae, far-flung isles, and even Great Crete. They were accomplished in seafaring and perhaps piracy, and for the past 80 years, the Mycenaeans had been gradually spreading influence over the seas. From references to embassies and small hints of trade, it seems that the Mycenaeans were now eight decades into a phase of upward mobility. The Egyptians were ready to take these people seriously. To visit Mycenae and Greece, the Egyptian ship had sailed via the large island of Crete. 
There, they would have engaged with the locals, the Keftiu or Minoans, and learned what they could of the Mycenaeans. That actually would have been quite easy. You see, by 1370 BCE, Mycenaeans were actually living in Crete, and perhaps ruling the island themselves. Mycenaean texts appear on the island of Crete, along with their material objects, and administrative documents written in the Mycenaean script actually replace those of the old Keftiu. It seems that around 1400 BCE, or a bit earlier, Mycenaeans had come to dominate several Aegean islands. People like the Keftiu Minoans were subdued or pushed to one side. Now there's a lot to say about that, and I didn't want to get bogged down this early. So there will be an episode 102b in which we explore the Mycenaean conquest of the island of Crete. Suffice to say, the Egyptians visited Crete, found that the Keftiu Minoans were no longer in charge, and so set off for the mainland of Greece in order to meet these newly powerful peoples. They soon came to the area that we know as the Peloponnesian coast. Rounding a promontory, the Egyptian vessel approached a harbour. This was the town of Nafplion, which the Egyptians called Nupiri. It nestled on a safe shore on the western coast, where it remains to this day. The Peloponnese is lined with rocky valleys and indentations, making its coastline alternately very exposed, but also very sheltered. Nafplion was a quiet place, perfect for anchorage. The Egyptian ship moored at the town, and the ambassadors disembarked. Within Nafplion, they began to ask around, where could they find the Mycenaean people who were so influential? Offering some trinkets, they soon recruited some guides, and began to head up the road towards the great city itself. The ambassadors loaded a team of donkeys, perhaps purchased in Nafplion, and set off on the dirt roads. To orient ourselves a bit, the Egyptians were heading north, following a road that led from the bay up to the mountains. On their left, one could follow paths leading to Argos, a famous town. On their right, the hills rose up in a commanding barrier. So the Egyptians were heading almost due north, towards the mountainous city of Mycenae. The Egyptians called Mycenae Mukinu, which is surprisingly close to the way Homer spells it in his Iliad. Homer calls the city Mukini, so he was pretty close to the Egyptian equivalent, all things considered. I'll call it Mycenae because that's the most common version in English, but just know that the original pronunciation is closer to Mukini. The ambassadors trudged through a strange landscape. Far from the Nile Valley with its sandstone cliffs and gentle hills, the topography of Greece must have seemed otherworldly. Mountains rose suddenly from the ocean itself, yellow grasses coloured the landscape. Rocks of many different shades permeated the ground, glassy greys and blacks, even blues and greens. These were the product of volcanic activity throughout the Greek world. To the Egyptians, this must have seemed very unusual. Apart from the strangeness, the Egyptians also found themselves climbing much higher than they were used to. Compared to Egypt, Greece is positively alpine, and as they rose up higher, the Egyptians got a very different view of the world around them. To the south, the sea stretched to the horizon. To the north, 
mountains loomed impassable. All around, the hills rose and fell in rocky crags. Up here, a new perspective seemed to open up. The vistas of Greece are spectacular. Trudging along the paths, clambering over outcroppings, the embassy marvelled at the differences between this land and their home. Even the trees were strange. Spreading oaks, towering poplars, and vast plane trees dominated the hills. Fig trees populated the lower slopes, and perhaps the local guides presented their guests with figs or acorns for a snack en route. Among these towering hills, colourful rocks and different trees, shepherds tended to flocks of sheep, goats and cattle. A few farmers managed their holdings, but to the Egyptians, the agriculture of Greece must have seemed paltry. Compared to the predictable river and the lush delta, mainland Greece must have seemed like a truly alien land. The people were a different matter though, far more recognisable and familiar. Mycenaeans dressed much like the Egyptians. Kilts and loincloths were functional and cool, perfect for long days in the sun. The only differences really were in the details. Mycenaeans used wool for their clothing compared to the Egyptian linen. Apart from that, the differences are minor. An Egyptian farmer and a Mycenaean one had much more in common than not. That being said, the Mycenaeans were, as a people, quite distinctive physically. For one thing, they were tall. The males averaged about 171 centimetres, or 5 foot 7. The females averaged 159 centimetres, 5 foot 2. For comparison, the Egyptian males were only as tall as the Mycenaean females. So the Mycenaean men must have towered over their foreign guests. One noteworthy skeleton revealed a man who, at 55 years old, was still powerfully built with broad shoulders. He had a round head, a high straight forehead, large nose, prominent lips, and close together eyes. Imagine a bronze-skinned bear of a man, with black hair and beard, and you might have an image of the Mycenaeans whom our embassy encountered. I will talk a bit more about Mycenaean characteristics, including their diet, life expectancy, and general health, later on in the episode. For now, let's keep the image of these tall, muscular folk in our head, as the Egyptians at last approached their destination. Rounding a bend, the Egyptians came fully into view of the city of Mycenae. The sight must have been quite beautiful. The city perched on an outcropping which jutted out of a huge mountain that stretched from east to west. This mountain dominated the area, and on its southwestern slopes, the Mycenae Acropolis commanded its environment. For reference, the main settlement was about 280 metres above sea level, or 918 feet. Compare that to Giza, which is just 19 metres above sea level, and the Egyptians were climbing to exceptional heights. Making their way up the western slopes, the Egyptians found themselves nearing the peak of the rocky plateau. To their left, rock faces were an impassable wall. To the right, the ground sloped sharply downwards towards a ravine far below. Ahead, Mycenae spread across the hill. Perched at the top of the plateau, the Acropolis, or summit of the city, was dominated by an ornate government building. This was the Megaron, the Great Hall. It was the centre of administrative life, and around it, houses and workshops clustered on the slopes. 
The city itself was open to the countryside. A few decades later, the Mycenaeans would surround their town in huge stone walls, very impressive things. But for now, the locals relied on natural barriers rather than artificial ones. Still, Mycenae was the thriving centre of labour in a wide region. Approaching the city, the Egyptians may have been struck by some rather noticeable differences with their own homes. For one thing, Mycenae of 1370 BCE was almost entirely lacking in temples. There were a few small shrines, but these were tiny, just a few metres long and wide. Compared to the Egyptian temples, holy spaces in Mycenae may have seemed somewhat pitiful. Tombs were also far less grand than the pharaonic world. A few steely marked some graves, and if the Egyptians looked to their left, they would have seen some mounds clustered on a hill to the north. More on those later. But the Mycenaeans were clearly in a more formative phase of their architectural development. Later on, they would achieve some truly remarkable things, but in 1370 BCE, the Egyptians may have been a bit surprised that a people with such far-reaching power had such a sparse hometown. But hey, they would get there. The Egyptians made their way into the town. They were dusty, perhaps a bit sore from the walk or ride, and in need of a cool drink. The sun was hot, the white plastered walls of the Megaron gleamed brightly. But time was pressing. After a quick pause to wash and dress in fresh clothing, the Egyptians approached the palace of Mycenae. The Megaron was a tall rectangular structure, At its front, a porch flanked by columns made for a grandiose entrance. The columns were wood, painted in bright colours, and perhaps gilded with bronze. Passing them, the Egyptians probably appreciated the similarity between Mycenaean architecture and their own columned halls. As they entered the palace, after some formalities, they were probably feeling relatively comfortable. The interior, though, that was quite different indeed. After the porch, the Egyptians entered an atrium space. Then, passing a door or curtain, they came into the throne room, the heart of governance and power in the city of Mycenae. This was an amazing area. Based on the decoration of contemporary palaces, specifically at the town of Pylos, we can guess that the Mycenaean throne room was a large square hall. Four pillars supported the roof. In their midst, A circular fire pit was the centre of the room. This stone hearth was the primary feature, both a place to gather and stay warm, and a place to cook meals for the powerful of the realm. Compared to Egypt, hot and dry, this might have seemed like a strange feature to have in the centre of the hall, but it was certainly an interesting one. Around the walls, brightly coloured frescoes depicted a variety of scenes, Human figures carrying offerings formed processional lines. Trees and flowers created nature scenes, and wild animals like lions and griffins, half lion, half eagle, made for a rich menagerie of powerful, untamable animals. To round out these scenes, images of festivals included lyre players and even a bull sacrifice. The effect, according to one scholar, was to create a space that was connected to the earthly power of a ruler and the ceremonial functions which a Mycenaean king should fulfil. The king of Mycenae was called a Wanax. The Wanax was a leader of warrior, priestly, and agricultural concerns. 
he commanded soldiers, led religious ceremonies, and managed aspects of the local economy. In other words, the Wanax was a versatile figure, whose expertise and skills could find a home in several areas of society at once. He was assisted in his leadership by a sort of deputy or vassal called the Lawegatas. Without getting into too much detail, I'll just say that as the Egyptian ambassadors entered the Mycenaean palace, they probably encountered the following scenario. Seated on a tall wooden throne, the Mycenaean king was an impressive figure. A richly coloured robe and a plumed crown marked him as a leader of men. His skin was olive tan, his black hair long and curly. Robes made of wool or linen were coloured in reds or blues. His crown, perhaps, was decorated with feathers and rosettes of gold. In fact, as far as we can guess, he was probably wearing a lot of gold. Evidence from royal graves at Mycenae suggests that early rulers used an incredible array of high-quality objects made in yellow metal. Cups, rings, pendants, even swords were decorated in gold and silver. On some objects, we see inlays of warriors in battle. On others, we see images of hunting, men and chariots chasing deer, and war, spear-armed warriors piercing their enemies who cower before them. These weapons, and the armour that attended them, were often decorated in gold. Speaking of war, to either side of the king there would have been guards, and these are worth a quick look, because Mycenaean warriors are intriguing. Mycenaean armour and weapons survive to this day, and what they reveal is a people with advanced military technology and a powerful emphasis on battle. Mycenaean swords could be quite long, up to 90 centimetres in the early periods. By the time the Egyptians visited, they were slowly switching from long, heavy swords to shorter, dagger-type swords. And this may have been partly influenced by necessity, or perhaps by connections and communication with the peoples of the Near East. The Mycenaeans were skilled weapon makers. The swords have elegant blades which taper inwards with a slight curve halfway down the sword. The pommel and the blade were made of one piece, clad in wood and wrapped in leather. When used, these sharp-edged swords would have slashed with deadly efficacy. Of course, the primary weapon was probably the spear. Simple and effective, spears were the weapon of choice for most of the ancient world. Mycenaean spears were usually held with both hands, raised at the shoulder. Long and heavy, these were great in a chariot, or when standing in a line. Later on, the Mycenaeans adopted shorter ones that they could carry with one hand while holding a shield. If you visit the podcast website, you can see reconstructions of this. Essentially, Mycenaeans sit at the very beginning of the Greek warrior tradition. Clad in their armour, shield and spear, a Mycenaean warrior would thrust and parry with his opponents, fighting for advantage. When the blow struck, long, leaf-shaped blades could pierce the victim's side. Mycenaean armour was a fantastic sight. It was made of bronze in heavy plates that curved around the body. These plates were linked by leather thongs, and put together, the armour covered the body from neck all the way down to knees. On the head, the Mycenaean soldier wore a helmet made of leather and tusks from the wild boar. These tusks were cut into curved strips and bound with leather and bronze. The helmets are quite unique, 
In fact, they are so distinctive that we can often use them to identify Mycenaeans in foreign artwork, including from Egypt. The Mycenaean armour gives an amazing silhouette, like a Bronze Age equivalent of the medieval knights. To the Egyptians, used to wearing kilts, shields, and maybe some leather or scales, these armoured warriors must have been an imposing sight. Intimidating bodyguards aside, the king of Mycenae, the Wanax, welcomed his foreign guests, and now the Egyptian embassy could truly begin. The Egyptians entered the throne room and greeted the ruler of Mycenae. To the Wanaks, from the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Neb Ma'at Re, the son of Re, Amunhotep, ruler of Thebes, the good god given life, greetings. The ambassadors spoke of their journey, of their homeland, and of the majesty of their great king, ruler of all that the Aten encircles. From the pharaoh and lord of two lands they came in peace, with good wishes for the well-being of the Mycenaean ruler. The great lord who is mighty in his two arms, who is victorious over all foreign peoples, sent them with generosity and gifts. With good will, a lasting friendship might be established. The Wanaks welcomed the newcomers, and the Egyptians presented their gifts. We can get a sense of what these gifts may have included, because some Egyptian artefacts have been uncovered in the ruins of Mycenae. Specifically, archaeologists have found objects named by Amunhotep III, buried in the ruins of the ancient citadel. These objects are fascinating. The Egyptians gave their hosts a set of blue faience plaques. The plaques, in the shape of rectangular tiles, were glazed a bright blue and decorated with rich black hieroglyphs. Those hieroglyphs, when reconstructed, say something like the following, quote, Necher nefer neb ma'atre sa ra amunhotep heka waset di ankh. The good god neb ma'atre, the son of re, amunhotep, ruler of Thebes, given life. End quote. Presumably the Mycenaeans could not read these hieroglyphs, but the significance was easy to explain. The pharaoh of Egypt, lord of the two lands, extended his hand and offered a gift to the Wanaks of Mycenae. Sending beautiful, costly goods, the king of Egypt sought brotherhood and good relations with a rising power in the Aegean world. This was a significant moment in political history. The Egyptians gave the plaques to their hosts, and the gift was accepted graciously. It seems that the Mycenaeans treated these objects with respect, at least for a while. When they were discovered, the plaques show up in a number of houses and spaces of Mycenae's grand citadel. It's likely that over the generations, the plaques became heirlooms, treasured relics of politically happy days. Whatever the story, they clearly survived for many decades, and that suggests that the locals appreciated their significance. With the formal introductions done, the real work of relationship building began. Along with the plaques, the Egyptians presented gifts like scarabs, 
Also, stone jars, particularly the milky white alabaster and the smooth granodiorite, which is prestigious and hard to work. There were also items of wood, like a box inlaid with ivory, discovered in a Mycenaean grave. There were faience cups, bowls, vases, even a silver spoon. These sorts of objects have been found in Mycenaean burials, and many of them are either definitively or most likely to be Egyptian in design and manufacture. When they travelled, the Egyptian embassies seem to have brought lavish gifts indeed. The Mycenaeans would have returned the favour of course, presenting equally valuable gifts to their honoured guests. I will talk about the Mycenaean gifts later on, for now, let's get down to the real business of socialising. It was time for a banquet. Banquets played a prominent role in Mycenaean society. Gatherings based around food were the nucleus of elite culture, and traces of these gatherings are abundant in both countries. Settling into a feast, the Mycenaeans put on a lavish spread for their foreign guests. From their texts, we can get a sense of the foods they might have served. The Mycenaeans could have offered a variety of cereals, fruits, meats and vegetables. Flatbread and porridge was made from barley, spelt, millet and durum wheat. Going along with that, fruits like figs, plums, pears, cherries, pomegranates and even wild strawberries were served for flavour. Honey, pistachio nuts, acorns and chestnuts would appear depending on the season. Vegetables like cucumbers, parsnips, leeks, garlic and lettuce were also common, along with coriander, celery, fennel and even cumin. Traces of these foods in archaeological sites and written sources give us a sense of a rich and varied diet in cereals, fruits and vegetables. The Egyptians would have been quite familiar with pomegranates, figs and even olives but pears and cherries were unknown, and they wouldn't become common in Egypt until the Roman era more than 1300 years later. To the Egyptian embassy, this spread of fruits and vegetables was probably a tantalising mix of the familiar and the deliciously exotic. As for meat, well, the Mycenaean hosts would have served up roast beef, pork, lamb and goat. These would have been familiar enough to the Egyptians but there are also references to the consumption of horse, rabbit, deer and boars. There is even talk of Mycenaeans eating animals like badgers, beavers, martens and otters, and sadly there is a reference to the consumption of dog. According to texts, Mycenaeans apparently ate dogs at least occasionally, so there's a fact of the day. With the food coming in droves, the Egyptians and Mycenaeans also made sure to toast each other copiously with drink. The Mycenaeans have left some beautiful vessels behind. Drinking cups like the Kantharos, which has two handles, are elegantly simple. With smooth, polished sides, Mycenaean Kantharoi made of gold show up in their graves, revealing a beautiful state of craftsmanship. Similarly, Goblets decorated with flowers and large ceramic vessels called krater were painted with images of wild animals and members of the nobility riding in their chariots. Viewed together, these drinking vessels showcased the wealth of Mycenaean society and the beauty of their artistry. You can see images of these objects on the website. They are gorgeous. The banquet was hopefully a cheerful gathering, the fire burned bright, the wine flowed free, and the conversation, mediated by translators, brought the two peoples closer in brotherhood. 
From opposite ends of the known world, the rich and powerful of Greece and Egypt laid the foundations for an enduring relationship. It was a good day in political history. The next morning, the Egyptian ambassadors gathered in the palace, Megaron of Mycenae. They had feasted and fettered, enjoying the hospitality of the wealthy Mycenaean elite. Now, slightly hungover, they came together to witness some of their host's culture. The pre-dawn light was a great time to explore Mycenae. The citadel's high position gives it a beautiful view of the countryside, and as the sky lightened from black to purple to blue, they would have seen the very best that the Peloponnesian landscape has to offer. Just before the sun rose, the ambassadors were treated to an experience of Mycenaean religion. Compared with classical Greece, the practices of the Mycenaeans in cult worship are a bit more mysterious, but enough evidence survives to give us some very basic ideas. First of all, the actual worship took place in a variety of locations. Like the Minoans, the Mycenaeans were enthusiastic nature worshippers, with many religious sites appearing on the peaks of mountains and in forest clearings. They had shrines within the cities themselves, but these were familiar to the Egyptians, so I want to focus on the outdoors. The natural sanctuaries were called the Temenos, literally space cut out of communal land. Under the open sky, worship and ritual were probably significant events within their local community. There were animal sacrifices and communal feasts on important occasions. Pretty familiar, right? The Egyptians, at events like Opet and the beautiful Feast of the Valley, celebrated their gods in the open air and consumed huge quantities of food and drink on their way to spiritual and physical release. The Mycenaean ceremonies, although located in different areas, were probably not so different. As for the gods, we have a dim understanding of Mycenaean cults from the survival of texts in their written language. These texts, which usually record economic and administrative concerns, also preserve the names of different shrines and the deities that were worshipped there. Some of these deities are startlingly familiar. From the written record, we know that one of the most prominent gods at Mycenae was named Poseidon, aka Poseidon. Poseidon, in his form of Poseidon Enesidaune, Poseidon the Earthshaker, was a powerful figure in the Peloponnese. The peninsula is prone to earthquakes, and a god like the Earthshaker seems like a natural subject for ancient worship. When the ground tremors and you don't understand why, it's much easier to fear the wrath of an angry god. So Poseidon, Poseidon, was a big deal. We also hear about the goddess Potnia, literally, she who has power. Potnia appears in many different guises, some of which later became quite famous. Potnia was connected with horses and grains, like the goddess Demeter, and in certain areas she became known as Potnia of insert region here. From that formula, we get a truly legendary being, Potnia Athana, aka she who has power in the land of Athens. Nearly a thousand years after the Egyptian embassy, Potnia Athana was being worshipped as Athena, the greatest lady of the Greek pantheon. At least, she's my favourite. I think the Egyptians would have understood, even appreciated, Potnia. 
She Who Has Power was, after all, strangely similar to their own Sarkmet, the powerful lady. If they learned about Potnia in detail, the Egyptians may have equated her with Sarkmet, and appreciated that throughout the world the great lady of power was recognised and worshipped. That's just a fanciful idea that I have, but I like to imagine the Egyptians watching an offering to Potnia and nodding, thinking of their own Sarkmet, the lioness who protected them. Many other gods show up in the Mycenaean tablets, and most of them are related to classical figures. We see references to Diwonisoyo, aka Dionysus, lord of fertility and wine, who was worshipped at fire altars. We also find traces of Emaha, Hermes, Eira, Hera, Matere Teia, Matertheia, the mother goddess, and two gods called Diwo and Diwia, that is Zeus and female Zeus respectively. Yes, although we mostly think of just Zeus today, he has a feminine equivalent, and her power was just as respected in Mycenaean Greece as that of the male. Once again, the Egyptians might have recognised this god in the form of their Amun and Amunet, the male-female pair who were part of the hidden mystery of life. Surprisingly, the Mycenaeans didn't depict their gods in paintings in the same way that the Egyptians did. Apart from small cult figurines, they seem to have avoided artistic representations of the great beings. Was this because the gods were ultimately unknowable? Or was it because they were beyond such petty contrivances as artistic imagery? Or is it an accident of preservation, a simple fact that whatever paintings did exist have now crumbled to dust? Only time and more research will tell. But some scholars have wondered if this absence of paintings suggests that the Mycenaeans viewed their gods as something more like supernatural forces rather than anthropomorphic personalities. That's a tough sell in my view, but this is the history of Egypt, not the history of ancient Greece. I am in foreign territory here. The Mycenaean priests, perhaps even the Wanax himself, offered their gifts and prayers to the great rulers of their pantheon. The Egyptians watched respectfully, appreciating the similarities and observing the differences, taking away some notes for later reflection. The rituals complete, the Egyptians perhaps made a small prayer to the rising sun. Ra Horakti, the Horus of the two horizons, was cresting the distant hills. Appearing in his form of Aten, the sun disk that illuminates all lands, he came forth to shine on Mycenae as brightly as he did on Egypt. With incense in hand, and perhaps some Mycenaean oils and food, the Egyptians praised the elder god as their foreign hosts looked on. Before the Egyptians departed the sanctuary, the Mycenaeans took a moment to show them the amazing wealth of their ancestors. They took them a few hundred metres north, towards a hill butting up against the great mountain. There, nestled into the slopes, the Mycenaeans showed them a remarkable tomb which survives to this day. The tomb of Atreus, so-called, is the grandest tomb in Mycenaean Greece. It is a kind of tomb called the Tholos, or Dome. Tholos tombs are a monumental kind of barrow. They take the form of a large circular dome dug into the hillside and covered over with heavy stone blocks. Gravity keeps the roof up in an arch, and in the centre of the hall, the grave is dug into the floor. 
Around the perimeter of this circular space, small chambers radiate outwards. Some of them hold funerary goods, others might hold additional burials. Tholos tombs are magnificent specimens of Mycenaean construction, and the tomb of Atreus is the greatest of all. To be honest, there is some debate over when the tomb of Atreus was built. Dates range from 1450 BCE or even earlier, to as late as 1300 BCE. But with a bit of charity and a nice average, we could put the tomb roughly around 1375. So in my mind, the hypothetical Egyptian embassy may have got to see a hypothetical tomb, newly completed and ready for the king's burial. Since it wasn't being used just yet, the Egyptians were allowed to go inside and take a look. Let's follow them. To begin with, the tomb of Atreus is huge. As they approached, the Egyptians would have encountered a tall, imposing gateway leading into the tomb itself. This gateway is a real achievement. 4.8 meters tall, or 16 feet, it is made of huge stone blocks, weighing up to 120 tons. The door itself is a simple rectangle, but above the lintel stone, 9 meters long, a triangular space acts as a kind of relieving chamber for the entrance. This displaces the weight of the stone and earth above the door, and makes it stronger. Passing through the doorway, the Egyptians would have entered a cavernous circular space. From wall to wall, the main chamber stretches 14.6 meters, 48 feet, and almost the same dimensions in height. A vast room, the burial hall is a mighty sight indeed. Standing inside, you feel like you are in a cathedral, but many times older than even the most ancient Christian monument. Here, at the heart of Mycenae's ancestral space, the tomb of Atreus is an imposing sight indeed. The tomb was empty when discovered, of course. Like the pyramids, it is too visible and too tempting to survive the ages. Nevertheless, some wonderful treasures do survive from Mycenaean royal burials, and you can see these on the podcast website. The embassy and their hosts now turned away from the tomb of Atreus and began to return to Mycenae itself. Just outside the city, though, the Mycenaeans may have stopped in order to show the Egyptians where their earliest kings and some of their ancestors had been buried in great splendor. Just before they arrived, though, the Mycenaeans may have taken a moment to show their guests the amazing wealth of their cemeteries. You see, clustered around the edges of Mycenae, and now partly buried by the walls, a necropolis of graves grew up between 1600 and 1350 BCE. These graves took the form of deep shafts, at the bottom of which the deceased were laid in prone fetal position, surrounded by high-quality grave goods. At the top of the shaft, stone stelae marked the burial spot, and archaeologists examining these cemeteries have compiled a wonderfully rich vision of Mycenaean wealth, along with some basic features of their lifestyles. To start with, many of the graves are infants and children. One estimate says that 60% of children died in their first year. Others, like a woman buried with a child, reinforce the fact that pre-modern societies across the world endured a much higher rate of infant and birth-related mortality. 
It was a rough time, medically speaking, and the cemeteries of Mycenae are exactly like those of Egypt in that regard. For the adult burials, things are slightly different. The average age seems to be about 36 years old, with evidence pointing to a good diet and overall health. Mycenaean teeth were stronger than Egyptians, and they were taller. The Mycenaeans averaged about 171 centimetres tall, or 5 foot 7. The Egyptians, meanwhile, averaged just 159 centimetres, 5 foot 2. On top of that, the skeletons suggest that Mycenaean males were broad and muscular, with large feet and hands. And you know what they say about large feet and hands. To the Egyptians, these men may have seemed like an imposing people. It's hard not to think of the legendary Ajax, largest of the Greeks at Troy, when looking at the Mycenaean skeletons. Speaking of Ajax, and legendary Atreus, whose tomb supposedly we just visited, there are plenty of mythological figures associated with Mycenae. If they ever existed, these were probably ordinary humans, whose deeds were collated and compiled into larger-than-life characters. But, the legacy of Ajax and Atreus lived on in the stories which ancient Greeks told about their ancestors. Before we leave Mycenae, let's take a quick moment to round out the legendary history of this very real town. For better or worse, the Bronze Age community of Mycenae is famous in Greek mythology, and it holds a commanding position in their tales. It was said that the hero Perseus, who slew Medusa the Gorgon, founded Mycenae as part of his kingdom. Perseus ruled long and well, and his descendants led Mycenae for four generations in the so-called Perseid dynasty. Over time, the city grew mighty, and its rulers attained great authority in their region. They were even able to command other heroes to do their bidding. It was said that the great-grandson of Perseus, a king named Eurystheus, got into an argument or feud with the great Heracles, Hercules. Eurystheus was powerful indeed, and it was he that commanded Heracles to perform his famous twelve labours, in penance for some great crimes. Heracles did these deeds, of course, and so his own legend is bound up with that of Mycenae. Long after Heracles, and over a hundred years after Amunhotep III, Mycenae became the home of the most famous king of all Greece. Mighty Agamemnon ruled Mycenae around 1250 BCE, so it is said, and in his day the great king led the Greeks to war against Troy. That is a story for another day, but it's worth remembering, not just because the Trojan War is so famous, but because the Egyptians have their own connection with that story. Thinking back to episode 96, the Colossi of Memnon, you may recall that a legendary warrior, Memnon, king of Ethiopia and Egypt, travelled to the city of Troy in order to fight on behalf of the Trojans against the invading Greeks and their king Agamemnon. Well, King Memnon of Ethiopia was later equated with King Amunhotep III of Egypt on account of those magnificent statues west of Thebes. So there is a connection between Amunhotep III and the Trojan War. It's a tenuous one, and the Greeks kind of made it up later on, but still, it's there. And it's an amusing irony that Memnon, king of Ethiopia and Egypt, was supposed to have fought against the Mycenaeans. Meanwhile, 
Amunhotep III, the inspiration for Memnon, actually forged diplomatic ties with that same people. So history and legend became twisted and inverted. Historically, the Egyptians got along well with Agamemnon's people. In legend though, they became better antagonists. Anyway, let's move on from legend and finish up our visit to Mycenae. The time now came for the Egyptian embassy to leave Mycenae. They had achieved their goals and opened relations with the great city. They had toured its spaces and visited some of its great monuments. Now they must return home to report to their pharaoh what wonders they had seen, what people they had met, and what successes they had enjoyed. Before they left, the Mycenaeans gave their guests presents to take home to Egypt. We know for certain that Mycenaean pottery travelled to the Nile Valley in large quantities during this general time period. But we can also guess that the Greeks offered some valuable materials as part of their new friendship. For one thing, olives and olive trees seem to have arrived in the land of the Nile within just a few decades of this embassy. Olive trees are known in the city of Amarna, where Amunhotep III's son Akhenaten ruled. Olive wreaths also showed up in the tomb of Tutankhamun, Amunhotep's grandson. So it's a good bet that olives came to Egypt in the reign of this great king. There was also valuable ore. The Mycenaeans mined huge quantities of silver and lead in different parts of Greece. These ores could be shipped raw to other centres for refinement, much like the copper ingots which travelled from Cyprus all across the Near East. Metal ore for weapons or objects was an increasingly important commodity. As technologies were developing and new refinements emerging, lead and silver ore were immensely valuable gifts. Finally, there is the possibility that the Mycenaeans offered their guests some of their own people. Based on evidence from Egypt, which I'll explain another time, it is possible that an expatriate community of Mycenaean artists, and maybe even soldiers, travelled abroad to serve the whims of Pharaoh. Whether they went as temporary workers or permanent migrants, the idea of Mycenaeans setting up shop in Egypt is surprisingly not that far-fetched. Anyways, as I said, pottery is the only product we know definitively travelled to Egypt. Artists and soldiers are likely based on artistic images, but we really don't know for sure. Still, it's a great idea, and I would like to imagine the embassy departed Mycenae loaded with gifts from the powerful Greeks to the lord of the Nile Valley. The world was becoming a lot more connected. There is so much more to say about Mycenaean culture and religion, I've really just scratched the surface. Sadly, we can't be away from home forever, so we must bid farewell to the rocky peninsula and take ship back onto the ocean heading for home. Don't worry, we'll be back one day. Today's events were quite speculative. We know a lot about Mycenaean culture, all that stuff is legit. But the events of the embassy, and the diplomatic journey itself, those are still in the realm of hypothesis rather than proven theory. 
Before we go, I'll run you through a quick explanation of where all this information comes from. You see, the Egyptians were keeping some surprisingly detailed records about the world, and they used them in some unexpected places. At the mortuary temple of Amunhotep III, that enormous but now vanished structure west of Thebes, the king's many statues once stood tall and proud. Today they are fragmented, but some of them are being restored, and set up once again in their original locations. Go and visit the area and you'll naturally be drawn to the ornate detail, the smug faces and the immense size. Closer to the ground though, things get quite interesting. The base of several statues at the old mortuary temple, fragments which survive today, are carved with hieroglyphic texts and small human figures. The figures come in many different costumes and represent a range of different groups. There are Kushite Nubians, Chemehu Libyans, Naharina Mitanni, and Alashian Cypriots among others. They appear as captives, their power subjugated by the statues of Amunhotep which tower overhead. The list also includes Greeks. A number of references on these statues record the pharaoh's dominion quote-unquote over the Keftiu Minoans and the Tanayu or Mycenaeans. The Tanayu, like the Danae of Homer, appear next to the people of Crete, and the hieroglyphs above them record a range of different place names. Among others, we find references to Amnisos, Canossos, Phaistos, Cania, Kythera, Laconia, Tyrans, Nafplion, and Mycenae. Now some of these names are debated in their translation, but the basic gist is clear. Egyptian sculptors working on the statues of Amenhotep III were aware and recorded their knowledge of different peoples from the Aegean region. If you read the hieroglyphs correctly, you seem to get a list, maybe even an itinerary, of a journey from Egypt in the east to Mycenae in the west, stopping at Crete along the way. How did the Egyptians know this? We are confident that Egyptians were communicating with Mycenaeans as early as 1450 BCE. In the time of Thutmose III, a reference to the quote, Tanayu bearing a jug in the Keftiu Minoan style, end quote, suggests that Mycenaean rulers were sending delegations into the Near East. Scholars suspect that Tanayu is the ancient Egyptian or Bronze Age equivalent of Danae, one of the names which Homer gives the Mycenaeans in his epic poem the Iliad. The Tanayu or Danae are clearly coming from the west because they are bearing items in the Keftiu Minoan style. But they're not Keftiu themselves, so the implication is that they are a different people coming from the same region. Because the time of Thutmose III, around 1450 BCE, is contemporary with the time that Knossos on Crete started to decline and be replaced by Mycenaean influence, we suspect that these Tanayu bearing Keftiu items are Mycenaeans who had just taken over the island and its communities. So by the time of Thutmose III, the Tanayu or Mycenaeans had already established a far-flung trading and political network. They were even able to visit the pharaoh while he was in the Near East. So the Egyptians knew that the Mycenaeans existed about a hundred years prior to this embassy. General trade was also happening. Not long after Thutmose III, faience figurines show up in Mycenaean cities. These 
bear the name of Akkeparure Amunhotep II. These figurines are made of faience, that blue glassy material the Egyptians were so good at, and they are made in the shape of monkeys. The monkeys might have come as trade goods, or possibly diplomatic gifts. It's hard today to view such non-serious images as diplomatic options, but that is a modern sensibility talking. Who knows what these might have represented? What we do know is that these faience figurines are the only items of Amunhotep II, and there are just two of them. So trade, or diplomacy, was still pretty limited during this time. By the time of Amunhotep III, things had clearly developed. We have those faience plaques, at least 11 of them, showing up in Greece. We also have scarabs carved with the names and deeds of Amunhotep and his queen T. These show up in Crete. There is Egyptian pottery in Greece, Mycenaean pottery in Egypt, and traces of Mycenaean Minoan art showing up at the pharaoh's palace. More on that in the next episode. So by the time of Amunhotep's embassy, the trade connections were growing stronger and stronger. The embassy itself though, that is still hypothetical. Historian Eric Klein, who has covered a great deal of this international material, notes that the Egyptian geographical list is oddly specific and also repetitive with some of the Greek locations. The names of Cretan and Mycenaean cities repeat in a way that suggests a journey, one set of names on the way out, the same set on the way back as the ship returns. Klein himself acknowledges fully that it's speculation, but when you have this much contemporary evidence, and such a specific but weird set of texts, well, Occam's razor suggests that an embassy of some sort did occur. Anyway, I think there's a strong chance that the diplomatic journey I've described happened in some form. At the very least, it was a great excuse to step outside the Nile Valley for a moment and have fun exploring a whole new world. Such dazzling places give a new fantastic point of view. With new horizons to pursue, that's where we and our embassy making their way across the Aegean get to be.